This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text-to-refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 149, and today I sat down with Lauren Castle, the founder and CEO of Sweet Lauren's. Sweet Lauren's is a better-for-you baked goods company that is redefining what it means to be delicious and convenient. Lauren shares her story from growing up in New York City as a middle child to working at a bakery on the Upper West Side to getting diagnosed with stage 2 cancer when she was just 22 years old, which set her on a mission to eliminate processed foods from her diet and led her to create Sweet Lauren's. We talk about how she got a meeting with a buyer from Whole Foods before even launching the company, what it was like to demo her product in front of customers for the very first time, and how she bootstrapped the business toward profitability. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story and building Sweet Lauren's. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to finally get the chance to chat with you. I know. We've had like coffee in Malibu and hung out with the mom groups that we're in. <laughs> we haven't ever gotten down to business. So I'm super excited to hear your story. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in New York City. I know there's not many of us, but I grew there up in, on the Upper West Side in New York City and then went to USC in LA for college, which also was so much more popular now. But back then, like no one from my high school really had went to USC. So it was a big deal kind of just being bicoastal at a young age. What were you like as a kid? Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? I think People would say I'm like classic middle child. I have an older brother who's two years older than me and then a, a younger sister who's five years younger than me. And I don't know, actually, I kind of felt like I, I was the older sibling sometimes because my sister was five years younger. That's quite a big age gap. And so she'd sleep in my bed with me. I would take care of her. She'd come to camp with me. I'd make her food on the weekends, Aww. you know, so... I felt like I was always, you know, kind of taking care of the little one. And then my brother and I were always friendly, but we weren't best friends. I mean, we were just boy and a girl, you know, like just had different friends and interests. So, and both my parents were entrepreneurs. And so I definitely grew up 
in not a conventional household. My mom was the breadwinner and she helped build a law firm. She helped build a wow. major national law firm. And, and so she was not the mom who was at my track meets or, you know, lacrosse right. practice or, you know, she wasn't the soccer mom. She was never the soccer mom. I, she, maybe she went to like one meet the entire time I was in high school, but I was always really proud of her. Cause I knew she was always just, she was so committed and busy and just had a big responsibility. And I saw her kind of win awards and I saw the way people looked up to her and the way that she helped a lot of people. And, and, and it was very inspiring at a young age. That is amazing. I've read somewhere, there's like a statistic that I read, I should have the resource, right? But I don't right now. But I remember it said that young girls that have working mothers end up becoming more successful and financially secure. I find that really interesting. I find that very interesting too. And I would love to actually dig into more of that because instinctively, that's what it felt like. And now that I have a daughter and another daughter on the way, I never feel guilty for working, but man, is it hard juggling, you know, just juggling work and being the best mom and being the best CEO and just, you know, time for everything. But I truly believe like she's only two years old and she's already seeing the way that I have other things going on and how to kind of respect that and how she can have other things going on as she gets older too. And so Yeah. Even though my mom was super busy and came home late a lot of nights when she was home. And also this was pre, you know, smartphones, but she was just a hundred percent devoted to her three children. You know, she was home, she was quick. We'd have dinner, you know, she would tuck us each in at night, even though maybe it was like five or 10 minutes alone with her felt very special. And I also learned something a lot from that just because it wasn't about hours. It was about just quality of time. Yeah, that's amazing. And what about your dad? What did he do? My dad is like kind of a crazy entrepreneur in his own way. He's just done so many things. He now runs an art gallery and is really interested in hemp products, meaning hemp, the type of material to make things more sustainable. You know, so like using hemp as a more sustainable plant that's used to make everything from like surfboards to ways to replace plastic and things like that. So But when I was growing up, he was in real estate and then he was an architect and then he was in electric cars and he's just jumped around a million things. So I can't put my dad (laughs) in a box. He's, he's, he's Mr. Creative, but growing up with them, I definitely saw a non-conventional lifestyle and marriage, I would say, because they were married for 18 years. They did get divorced when I was 14, but my dad, because he was doing real estate in upstate New York, lived had a house there. And then we grew up in the city in New York city, you know, living with my mom, but my dad would come in a couple of days a week and we'd go up to his house every weekend. And so it just like was a very creative environment and fast paced environment to grow up in. That sounds awesome. And so what kind of things were you into? Were you into specific sports or hobbies? It's interesting when I think back, it's not, was I like really into baking? I was really into gymnastics when I was young. And then when I was kind of 12, it got to that point where it was like, you either need to go four days a week and become super serious about this or kind of drop it. And I was like, I'm, I don't want to be a professional gymnast for my life, you know? So I kind of dropped that and have always been into running and track and, you know, also like played basketball and lacrosse and things, but I'd say 
track was probably like the one thing that I was the most consistent with. And then when I, right after I graduated high school, I became a yoga instructor before I went to college. So I've always been interested. Yeah. That's awesome. What did you want to be when you grew up? And also kind of piggybacking off of that little dream as a kid, looking back, do you kind of see any entrepreneurial things that you did early on that point out to, to you being an entrepreneur yourself? Yeah, it's funny. I don't, I don't know about entrepreneur, but I definitely like leading things and being the boss. And so, <laughs> you know, like I remember, it's so ridiculous to tell this story, but I remember I would actually take from my classroom, like, not that it was a big deal, but I was kind of embarrassed to ask for it. The attendance sheet, they would print out like a hundred attendance sheets and I would just take out like five of them and then bring them home just because it was like, organized little graph of 25 names and and are they here? Are they absent? Are they here? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I would take that home. I also was obsessed with like long hair when I was little and I had this long blonde wig. After school, I would like come home and like, you know, when I was playing around, I, I must be around seven or eight I would take out the wig. I would wear the wig. I would line up all of my stuffed animals. I would use this attendance form to be like, who's here? Who's not? Who's doing what? Do little check marks and X's. And I just remember my mom would walk in and be like, oh, so sorry to interrupt, you know. And <laughs> You're I having a to- meeting with your stuffed animals. I'm so sorry I <laughs> try, barged in. Try to, yeah, like take it really, you know, I think kids are playing all the time. But I remember for my 10th birthday, my mom was like, well, what do you want? And I wanted things I could put on my desk that could organize my post-it notes and like pens and pencils. And so clearly I just, I like the feeling of having like a desk and like leadership. Do you think that's because of your mom? Probably. I probably just... Did she have long hair? No, she actually had shorter (laughs) hair, but, but I think it probably wasn't. I think it's probably partly innate because like my brother's not like that. And he had my mom and my sister's not as much like that. And she had my mom as a role model. So it's probably I always wonder, is it nature, nature versus nurture, right? Yeah. It's such it a has big to question. Be both. Yeah. It has to be both. I mean, my daughter already is born who she is, but I'm sure we're going to influence her in certain ways. Do you think she's a leader too? I do. She's bossy. She knows what she wants, you know, awesome. even at two. <laughs> and I get mad, but I'm also like, you go girl. Yeah. Right, you know, right. stand up for yourself. <laughs> You tell them what's up. (laughs) That's so funny. So clearly you had like these early signs of wanting to be a leader. I even remember myself like as a kid, I think it was like third grade. I had this really cool teacher and she looked really stylish. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's standing in front of the room. She's like telling us kids what to do. And she looks cool doing it. That's what I want to do, you know? (laughs) But I I later realized that I didn't want to be in a room with children. (laughs) But the whole leadership thing, I think that like for myself looking back, I'm like, ah, that was like my first maybe resemblance of a cool leader and how I aspired to maybe want to be one one day. So you went to USC. Talk to us about college and your first you know, internships and jobs. So USC, I really liked it, but it was such a change. I mean, I went from New York City, East Coast to LA where I didn't have any family and I didn't have a car and all my friends had cars because they were all from. Did you even Southern know California. how to drive, by the way? Because I feel like most people in the city don't get a license. It's true. But I did because we actually we went to me. And my brother went to Riverdale High School, which is in Riverdale, which is right outside of the city. So we had a car and you know, we were old enough here. I would drive to school. So 
I did. I learned, I knew how to drive, but you know, I was in college and I was at the college campus. Like I wasn't going to buy a car. My parents weren't going to buy me a car, you know, yet. And so I just remember, and then I joined a sorority, which again was something I was so not used to. And, you know, there's, there was just this whole life at USC that was like, my mom went here, my grandparents went here, you know, people that are local, you know, have a lot of connections to it. And I just came in with kind of zero, but so freshman year, I just immediately knew that by junior year, I wanted to study abroad the whole year. And so I just wanted to have as many adventures and experiences as possible. And I was like, three years at college is probably enough to do everything. So what courses do I need to take to go abroad junior year? And so I was going to major in business, but you at USC, you can't actually take off a whole year and major in business. So I majored in communications and did fine arts as kind of a minor. I used to paint a lot as well. And so, and then I studied abroad in Florence for a semester and then Amsterdam for my junior year. And I'm so glad I did that because that was the time of my life. And I just was exposed to so much and just, it was a year of like unbelievable adventure and weekend trips and, and just really growing independence. And so then by, by senior year, when I came back, I was kind of over school. Like I just was yeah. ready for the real world. To I think start. once you go to Europe and you're like, it's just over, you know? Yeah, it's over. You're right. like, you know, winding and dining and checking out all these amazing museums. Right. And like, you're just, you feel so free. I'm ready for the real world. Yeah, I'm just ready. I'm ready for something. I'm ready for more than just like classes. And so, and then I started dating a guy who didn't go to USC. And so, I think that also pulled me away from campus a little bit more as well. But, and so he was older, he had graduated college already. So he lived on the West side and that was fun for me because like USC is in downtown LA and I got to like spend a lot of time by the beach and that's why I wanted to come to LA. And I really fell in love with the West side of LA. And then I graduated and I had no internship or anything lined up. And I think, again, I had been certified as a yoga instructor and done like some you know, a little bit of teaching. When I went back to New York for like summer weekend breaks, holiday breaks, I would work at this bakery called Levan Bakery. I don't know if you know Where it. Where is if, that? If you're in your, it's on the Upper West Side. They actually have several locations now, but it's called L-E-V-A-I-N. And it was my neighborhood bakery. So I grew up going there and there just was lines around the block. And they made these cookies that were like half a pound, huge. And I became friendly with the two women who owned the bakery. And it was just like a legendary place with a big following. And so I used to work there because I was like, oh, this is easy. I can just, bakery is such a fun place. Everyone's in a good mood. And so that was my first kind of real job. And even though it sounds like sweet, like you're working in a bakery, it was one of the hardest jobs I've had because there was no sitting down. You were standing the entire time. You had to get there at 6.30 in the morning. You had to be friendly to everyone. Like I was the front, you know, kind of like the face of the bakery at the front, handling everyone's orders and making sure everyone was happy. And, but that did inspire me just I think that's where I fell in love with that, with what baked goods can do for people, just the joy it can bring. Like I met people from around the world that would come, they would line up. Everyone just had a smile on their face. And I was like, wow, I, like this is powerful. Yeah. And then, so I graduate college, 22, came home to New York for a couple of months with the plan to actually move back to LA and like move there full-time and figure out my real full-time job. And a week before my plane ticket, 
I woke up and the lymph nodes in my neck were incredibly swollen and something just felt way off. And I thought I had mono, something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And my mom, unfortunately, had a type of leukemia. And so she had an oncologist and she was like, you're coming with me to my doctor immediately on Monday. So I remember my plane ticket was for Thursday. My appointment with the doctor, he rushed us in on Monday. You know, I walked into the doctor's office. I was definitely the youngest one by decades in this doctor's office. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and said, you either have nothing at all or Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I just couldn't, I didn't even Google it because I just was like, there is no way I could have something really serious right now. There's just no way you're 22, you're invincible. Like, you know, you're feeling great and you're excited to enter the real world and be an adult for once. And so he made me cancel my plane ticket. He was like, you're not moving to LA. We have to figure out what this is. And it, what was weird is that nothing showed up in my blood work. I had no other signs, no side effects or anything besides the lymph nodes being swollen. So there just wasn't, it wasn't obvious. So they had to do a biopsy of a lymph node and they took it from my neck. And then they found out I had stage two Hodgkin's lymphoma and I had to start chemo immediately. That just was unbelievable. Oh my gosh. That's so terrible and shocking. And you really couldn't, you like had no idea. This is like Al the blue. You just woke up one morning. No idea. Like literally the last thing you'd ever think of. Right. Because you were feeling fine this entire time. Like That week I was moving from New York to LA. So I definitely had some extra anxiety and just like, what am I going to do? And what's the next job I'm going to get? And But no, nothing besides what could be seen as just normal feelings for when you're moving across the country full time. It was beyond shocking. I mean, it's it's shocking for anyone at any age. But yeah, when you're that young and I was done with my pediatrician, I didn't have a new doctor. So my mom's doctor became my doctor, which was also so surreal and crazy. But I had to go through six months of chemo treatment and thankfully was cured after that. But, you know, it was really hard for me to like, just have a normal internship after that, or like have a normal job. I just felt like, I feel like I was like 45 years old. I don't feel like a reckless 20. I was now like 23, 23 year old kid in New York city who just wants to like party and drink and date a million guys. Like I just, I was more serious. And I think I just really saw how precious life was. And and I just was so committed to health and wellness because I was like, I will do anything to never be sick again. I will do what, some things are out of our control, but I will do whatever I can to feel great for the rest of my life. Looking back, I mean, do you think that there was anything that contributed to that diagnosis at all? There's nothing they can they can point to. Like there's they haven't figured it out. It's also not genetic. Mm-hmm. They have no idea. I mean, They say higher stress can cause it, but I mean, it's so many different factors, I'm sure. But it's so, but you kind of took the angle of like, you're just going to do everything you can. What did that include? Food, obviously. What were some of the other things? So, for the first like couple months, like probably the first like two months, I was so miserable. Like, I've always been kind of an outgoing, charismatic person and I, a positive person. And I like just became the opposite of that for a couple of months because I was just in shock mode. I was just like home, didn't want to see friends, watch TV, you know, to distract me as much as possible. I felt really, really weak after treatment. So 
I just like didn't know what to do with myself. Yeah. Not that I was embarrassed, but there is this level of you're just so overwhelmed and, and fragile that like you don't even want to tell everyone because you're just like, I just don't even want to deal with that reaction or right. people feeling sorry for me or I don't even know what to say because I'm in shock. So so I felt like really I hit rock bottom those first two months. And then I just remember, so I started seeing a therapist that the doctor recommended and she worked only with cancer patients. So she really had experience dealing with the psychological effects that happen. Mm -hmm. And I remember her saying to me, don't you think this could actually become like the biggest positive in your life? Wow. Don't you think you could become so much stronger because of it and like have learned big lessons at an early age? And a light switched on in my brain when I heard that, like, I, I couldn't imagine turning into such a positive, but it made so much sense when she said it. And I saw what it felt like being really depressed and and going down this journey of going through chemo and just getting better and having it just be miserable every day. Like I didn't want that. So I was like, how do I use my mind to turn this around so that I can control the situation and make it as positive as possible? That's what I want. I want to be happy. I want to, yeah. I want to feel good. I want to feel like I'm going to get through this and I'm going to be actually healthier and happier on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so I just set this intention and this like tunnel vision for that. And so I like immediately it was like mental, what can I do? Like I started to meditate and just really get in touch with my body and my emotions and always prioritize feeling good and whatever mm-hmm. I really tuning in. So like whatever I was craving to eat, you know, I tried to work out as much as possible, even though I wasn't nearly doing as hardcore running or weights, but just getting blood flow, just getting endorphins, just feeling flexible, like mm-hmm. so healthy and important and, and feeling normal. So on days that I felt strong enough, I would do that. So working out, meditating, yoga, like staying connected to my body, trying to give my body a lot of like love and appreciation and then food. We need to eat every single day, every couple hours to give ourself energy to fight this, to overcome, to recover, especially these really harsh medicines and drugs I was taking. And so I just couldn't believe that like my doctor, who was an incredible doctor, but I asked him, what should I be doing? He was like, just keep your normal routine. That was his advice. (laughs) And to me, I was like, obviously my normal routine isn't working, right? Like I want to supercharge myself. So I just became my own nutritionist and started to study nutrition as much as possible and really fell in love with just kind of real food, unprocessed food, as natural, as fresh as possible. It just has the best quality taste and has the most nutrients. And then decided to take cooking classes on days that I wasn't going through treatment so that I could learn how to make the food delicious. Mm -hmm. Because that's the only reason most people don't eat healthy is like it's either too hard or doesn't taste as good. And so you're like, or too expensive. And so I was like, how do I just make it easy and accessible? And so I became a really good cook, just making interesting salads and proteins and grains and a lot of greens and just trying to get like a super varied diet and listen to my body and whatever made it feel good, I would eat. But I also have a huge sweet tooth. And I just feel like there was nothing like people would like, oh, eat dates and some almonds and dark chocolate. (laughs) And I'm like, come on, that's fine once in a while, but there has to be something that makes you fall in love with life and is delicious and decadent and gives you that super high and happiness that like a really amazing cookie can do. 
there has to be a better way to do it. And so I started to look at the bakery that I love. It was not a health focused ingredients, right? And so that's where I just, I fell in love with the concept of like warm, delicious cookies, but how do I do that in a much less processed, cleaner way that you felt good physically and mentally? You didn't feel like, oh my God, I can't move out of this chair. I just ate these cookies and I'm having that sugar high and sugar crash thing. And so that became, I became obsessed with that concept. And so I started to like take cooking classes every kind of cookbook possible I would buy and just started to make my own recipes at home. That's incredible. So when was the light bulb that went off where you're like, this is what I'm going to do? This is my mission now. So at the beginning, it was really just a personal thing. I was like, I don't know why I am so passionate about all these like natural ingredients and using, you know, when people say flour, they normally just think of like white bleached normal flour. And like all of a sudden me studying kind of natural cooking, all of a sudden it was just learning about oat flour and potato starch and rolled oats and tapioca. And there are just so many other types of flours you can use. And so there was a personal kind of aha. I am fascinated and love this world. And I can't believe no one else really sees it and is as excited as I am. But the aha when like Sweet Lawrence should be a business was when I just saw the reaction because I was making so many batches of cookies all the time because I need a creative outlet. And I think baking honestly helped cure me in a certain way. Like it's very therapeutic baking. It makes you feel really happy. It's like creates a stillness. There's something magical about it. And so there's a self-care aspect. And so I just was doing it a ton, but like, obviously I can't eat two dozen cookies every time I make them. So I was always giving them to friends and families and neighbors. And when I saw like multiple, multiple times, people just kind of be like, holy shit, like this is amazing. Like this is different. I would buy this over the other cookie dough that's on the shelf. Could I just buy cookie dough from you? So I have it in my fridge and I can just like make it for my kids later and have it be warm and gooey. And, and like, when I just saw that multiple, multiple times, I was like, wait a minute, I'm not the only one who wants this. Everyone I meet gets excited about this concept. And then I started to study the food industry, which I knew nothing about, just the CPG packaged food industry. And like, how does food get on shelf? It seems easy. You have a great product, just put it on the shelf. Magically gets there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone who knows this space knows it's pretty archaic and just very old school run. And it's a business within a business. And and it's really hard to break in because you're, you know, you're really battling against kind of five or six global companies that make most of the food that's on the shelf and obviously have huge budgets and are huge brand names. And so when I just kind of saw what was out there and then saw the reaction of people, that was the other big aha was just like, I am going to turn what happened to me into the biggest positive possible by like using this anger I have like fire in my belly that food should be delicious and accessible and clean it just should be that for everyone. And it's not when you rely on packaged food. And so who better to kind of fight that system than someone like me who just like will always have this fire in my belly because of what I went through. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 
When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code stairway15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code stairway15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. And so sounds like the early validation came from the neighbors and the family and friends saying, we really want this. We would buy this. And then what were some of the first steps that you had to take to try to get the company off the ground? And this sounds like kind of your first job. <laughs> Why is that kind of true? Well, well, I should say that like, okay, so it was a hobby at the beginning, right? So like from 23 to like 26, let's say it was like kind of like two and a half years or so. I was baking as a hobby on the side, getting more and more kind of interest. And I tried I tried to be an employee for someone. <laughs> and, and I think that's when I realized I'm an entrepreneur. And if I'm going to have like a future, I need to figure out how to have my own business. So I worked for a PR company. I really was miserable. I worked for a wine company. It was fun, but I wasn't passionate enough about it. I helped manage a restaurant and started to kind of create some of the desserts on their menu. And that's when I was like, wait a minute, a chef should be doing this. Like not me. But right. You're like managers don't do this. <laughs> and so, but I kept being drawn and I was teaching yoga on the side and none of that stuff I wanted to do full time, but I just liked being around people. I liked making people happy. I liked health and wellness. I liked business. I liked food. Those were the themes that just kept kind of popping up. But most importantly, I just was truly miserable working for someone else. Deep down, I never was happy. Right. Makes sense. But where were you working when you had this idea? And when did you decide to leave? Like, were you working full-time when you were thinking? I was working. Yeah, I was working full-time managing this restaurant and and then like teaching yoga on the side of it and really just trying. I was living at home still. I still had to go to the doctor 
for every six months for checkups, I'd still felt fragile. They kind of gave you like a five-year window. Like after five years, if nothing comes back, you're clear. And so for those like five years, like 23, 28, I still felt very fragile because I didn't feel clear yet. And so I was working full-time and then a friend of mine well, worked in advertising and she was like, when everyone zigs, you should zag. And, you know, she like said this line to me and I was like, wait a minute, that kind of makes sense. And I knew nothing. I mean, I major in communication. I've always been kind of interested in the way things are presented. And I've always liked talking in public and things like that, but I'd never taken an advertising or marketing class or branding class. I had no idea, but it was definitely interesting to me because I think I love like the psychology behind it too. And so I entered a baking contest and I won. And it was like this non-for-profit baking contest. It's not like it was this huge thing, but it was for like the Lower East Side Girls Club. And it was like a, it was a good nonprofit to raise money for. And so I did it with like 25 other bakers and I won. The judge came up to me and she was like, you need to do something with this. And again, she was a major pastry chef. And again, it was just was amazing validation. I was like, okay, you're not friends or family. You are, (laughs) you know, like you're a stranger and a judge. (laughs) Exactly. I think I trust you more than I trust what my friends are saying. And that was another nudge at it. And then I, things just kind of fell apart with the restaurant. I just kind of ended up leaving and then I was like, I think I really said to my mom, like, okay, give me six months living at home where like, I'm not paying rent or anything like that. I can just get this off the ground. Mm-hmm. And she was like, okay, you have six months. And so I took it super seriously and entered a, a business writing course to write a business plan for Sweet Lawrence. Because at the beginning, I didn't actually know it was going to be a CPG product. I was like, maybe it'll be a bakery. Maybe it will be a CPG product. And even if it is a CPG product, should it be baked cookies? Should it be baking mix? Should it be cookie dough? There were so many different formats. And I started to write a business plan for it. And this guy in my course worked in Whole Foods, not corporate, worked like in the overnight shift, restocking shelves to make money, to make his dream come true, which was to open a, a bike store. And so one day, and I was always bringing cookies to the class. And I, one day I was like, Corey, how do I get into Whole Foods? What's the process? Mm-hmm. And he called me like a couple of days later and was like, you have a meeting on Wednesday with the head buyer of like the Columbus Circle Whole Foods, which is probably one of the busiest in the nation because it's New York City and you just get the most foot traffic. And and I was just like, oh my God, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not ready. Like, I'm going to look like an idiot. Right. My website said coming soon. I had bought the URL, but that was kind of it. And he was like, Lauren, just go, go have him taste it, go have a meeting. And, you know, I just made a deal with myself. Like there's no one who's going to make me happy, but me. I clearly am not happy working for someone else. I need to figure out how to start my own business. I need to figure out how to turn all the negative things into the biggest positive. And there really needs to be different brand names on the shelf by the time I have children one day. Like there just needs to be improvement. And so all of those things were behind me. I remember making a deal with myself. I was like, just show up 110% for everything. Let's just see what that does. So made a one pager, looked really professional. What does Sweet Lauren stand for? What are the ingredients that we use? Why do we exist? I made like 15 different recipes. You're like, hopefully they like one out of the 15. <laughs> Like just just tell me one of them is good. I repurposed some box. I mom got some like fancy present in the mail, and I like repurposed that box to be like the cookie box I this brought. This is our branded box. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We ordered this special from Italy. It was kind of in that conversation with the the buyer from Whole Foods that 
And again, things are a little different now that Whole Foods is owned by Amazon, but, but before you could really go in like locally and meet with a buyer and, you know, they really, really encourage bringing in local products. And so I met with the buyer and he was like, why are you so obsessed with this concept? Like, why are you, what made you do this? And I told him the story and I hadn't really told a buyer, like someone in the industry, my story before. And he was so touched from the story and he just like immediately believed in the quality of the product and the mission behind the product and like the purpose. It was a very powerful moment for me because I was kind of embarrassed to tell the story. And that's when I realized I have to be just super empowered telling the story and realizing that actually it shows, you know, kind of how serious we are and our purpose and why I'm so passionate. And there's kind of a trust that's formed when you have like an authentic brand like that. But also what a risk you kind of took because you didn't really know that going in and you came from a place where you weren't even really wanting to tell your friends about your situation. So here, all of a sudden you're like, F it, I'm going to just say it. Yeah. I was like, you know, I'm here to test and show up. And I was nervous because what I was afraid they were going to say is like, well, are you sure you're all better? Are you sure you're Mm -hmm. not going to start this? And then what happens if you get sick again? Or what, are you strong enough to do all of this? And, and I think I just, you know, I just, I read his reaction and his reaction was, it was only positive. It was only, oh my God, I, I trust what's in this now. And he had kids. He was like, let me bring this home. Let me test it with the other buyers on our team. Let me test it with my family. And then he called me the next day and I was like walking. I will never forget. I was like walking on the Upper West Side in New York City. And he called me and was like, we've never tasted something so good. Like how soon can we get this? And I was like, just crying, you know, because I was like, all I need You're like on mute, shot. just bawling your eyes out. <laughs> You're like, hold on a minute. I can't hear you. And you're like crying. Oh my gosh. I mean, the next day, that's a fast turnaround, by the way. It was a very fast turnaround. But then also he was like, okay, so how soon? And he was also super helpful because he walked around the store with me. And so he was like, well, what do you make exactly? Because I had like these 15 different flavors of baked cookies for him to try. But he was like, is it a baking mix? Is it a shelf-stable baked cookie? Is it cookie dough? And I I was like, well, you tell me what you guys are interested in because like we can That's really cool. do everything, you know, <laughs> just because I had no idea. You know, I was like, just give me an order. Tell me what you need. And we looked around and something is baked and shelf-stable. It's not going to have that warm, gooey right effect on you. Plus I was using very natural ingredients. So like, it's hard to get like a very long shelf life and you need a long shelf life to sell a baked cookie. Then we looked at baking mixes and it was like, these really don't move that fast. Plus like you have to tell people to add an egg or oil and like, then you can't really control what goes into the product as much. And we looked at cookie dough and he's like, you know, no one's really built the next brand name that stands for natural. And and, you know, there's two big players that own the cookie dough space in mass market. And, but no one had done that really in, in the natural space. The natural space was only growing and that's what people really were wanting. And I knew it was the future of food. And so it just kind of was this aha of everything. Cause like people loved eating cookie dough raw. People love the convenience of having it at home. And then in 10 minutes, you can have a warm cookie out of the oven and, And then I didn't have to add preservatives or anything weird to it to give it shelf life. So for all those reasons, he was like, let's get cookie dough. How soon can you get it? And I was like, oh, probably like a month thinking like in my head, I could design packaging, find a factory. I'll do everything tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Just give me an order and I'll figure it out. And it took seven months to figure out 
find a factory, run test runs, design packaging. What did he say when you said one month? Was he like, yeah, he was like, great. No, he was oh, like, no, great. He yeah, yeah. He totally believed me. He was like, he was like, great. Email me the second you're ready. And then of course, like it took several more months, but I just stayed in touch with him and he... How did you manage that? Were you like, hey, sorry, need more time. Hey, sorry, need another week. Yeah. I was like, our factory is just a little backed up right now. So I think I just need probably two more months, but I'm getting you it as fast as I can. And I think just because I was in communication with him, he was like, okay, like I know you're going as fast as you can. We're here. Like there is a need for this when you're ready, you know? So it wasn't like, you're not in by tomorrow, you're not in, but he really he helped believing and get us off the ground. And I'm, and then that year I was only in literally three Whole Foods, just three stores. And people think you get into Whole Foods and become like a billionaire. And it's like, absolutely not. (laughs) Like it is so much hard work. They test you out first. Yeah. And so I only got into like three stores and I would take a toaster oven in a carry-on suitcase on the subway to the Whole Foods, find an aisle, plug in, set up a table. Like I was that girl doing demos and and demoing Sweet Lauren's cookie dough so that you could try it. And I will say it was the hardest year probably of my life because it was just so physically exhausting. And then I get a call from the factory, they had a production issue and I'd be, it was a one person show. I was trying to figure out how to do everything, but it was gold being in Whole Foods and hearing real time consumer feedback because I heard enough at the time, like, oh my God, this is a brilliant concept. Like, of course I would buy a better for you cookie dough. I didn't know something like that exists, but also all the negatives, like the packaging, I can't read the flavor. How do you scoop this? The bake time, like just all of the questions of confusion that packaging can create. And that helped me tremendously tweak the packaging, find a new factory and just really improve the product. Absolutely. That's amazing feedback, but also hard to hear when you're just starting out and it's your baby. You're like, are you saying I'm the founder here? Do you not know? You know like, no, it's like, true. I got to the point where like, what if I was really exhausted and someone said something negative, I would just be like, I like, I probably would say something under my breath. Like I just couldn't hold back anymore. That's when I realized I needed a team. Cause I was like, I'm going to hurt my own brand just because I'm so it's too emotional and you need to be able to take feedback. Strengths and weaknesses, you know, as a founder, you got to figure out where you got to be and not be at certain times. That's amazing. So, I mean, such a huge deal that you get into Whole Foods, even if it's just three stores, what an accomplishment out of the gate, you know, I mean, out of nowhere, really, and huge advantage to get feedback about where to even be in the store, which is awesome. I think you mentioned before we hopped on that you raised some money from family and friends as you've grown the business. Why have you kind of decided to not raise future venture capital or anything else other than the small initial round you raised? So about six years ago, we started getting like real national traction. I got into Publix and Kroger supermarkets, like full distribution on my first meetings, I got into Target, and it started to really take off and wasn't profitable yet at the beginning. So I was like, I'm going to have to raise some money. So I raised from friends and family and an angel investor. And then really focused on, and this angel investor was also became like my business mentor. He's definitely not a food CPG expert, just an incredible businessman. And he was like, all I care about is that we build this brand to its potential, do as much good as possible. And I mentor you. He's been in business decades. You know, he was like, if we meet once a week and, and I'm as helpful as possible and I make sure we stay healthy then 
that's what I want out of this. And that's what I wanted. Like it was very hard to start a business as a first time business person, first time entrepreneur, no partners. My parents were not involved in the business. Like no one else was really helping. And we really built a plan to profitability very soon. And so we've been like a healthy, profitable business that really can self-fund. So at this point, we've now built the next three to five-year plan and they're just, we don't need it. I mean, listen, you can always use more money, but the things that come with it, I don't necessarily want right now. And so we have a path. I like being in control of our future. I'm just glad we're in this position because even in a climate like this, like I see many businesses going out of business because they need the capital. And we just are building a healthy business full stop. And if one day I wanted to put in more funds just to infuse the business with something, something that we needed or that could like supercharge the company, I would consider that. But for right now, I'm really proud that we're building a business that's sustainable. Absolutely. And in terms of becoming profitable, what? how much time did it take or what was the revenue milestone that allowed you guys to kind of achieve that? Just for kind of, you know, people thinking about taking that same path. I think probably once we got to four or five million in revenue, we started to become profitable. Yeah. And then also I don't have a hundred SKUs. We built this business on basically four SKUs of cookie dough, but last year we just launched a less sugar cookie dough line. So now we're six SKUs, but it's, it's really been highly, highly focused on our top items. And so I think sometimes when you launch a lot of products at once, their velocity isn't high enough or their margin isn't healthy enough. It can weigh down your business plan, but we just kept a very focused, very efficient business. And that made it, you know, the bigger it got, the easier it was to control and the healthier the cost of goods got and the better our margin got. And so I'm a really big believer in like becoming the number one at what you do before you move into other items. Absolutely. And so that really helped us. Actually, when I was kind of thinking about when I was raising money, Tony Shea, founder of Zappos, who sadly is not around anymore, but I was friendly with him and I, I was talking to him about, about it. And his biggest thing was like, it's so hard to even do what you've done, create, yeah. own a niche. You get excited when you finally are like, oh, we're now in 10,000 stores or something. Let's now create, move into this other category or create this other product. And it's like, no, why do you want to go through all of that headache again? Just you built something that's working, like double down on it, become the number one at it. Make sure that model is like so healthy and clean so that it gives you actually the financial stability to then go try something new. And so that really became my North Star was just, let's just build a really great foundation so that we then can move into other products. That's awesome advice. And speaking of product, I know that you have those two new uh, SKUs with less sugar. I don't know if you want to talk about them, but I obviously, you know, I'm the huge fan, huge fan, always buying (laughs) your cookie dough every time I go to Whole Foods. And I think the sugar cookies are probably my favorite, by the way. For anyone listening, that. you have to buy them. Try them. <laughs> so again, like from the early days, the biggest thing I learned was also just really listening to customer feedback. And so the number one request we had over the years was, hey, can you create something lower sugar? I'm super either sensitive to sugar or I'm staying away from sugar or I'm counting mm-hmm. my grams of sugar throughout the day. And so obviously when people have desserts, they're most of the time loaded with sugar. And so what we try to do, which no one else in cookie dough has really done before was how do you create a cookie 
you know, that has as less sugar as possible, but doesn't have any sugar substitutes in it. So no, you know, erythritol or allulose or stevia or monk fruit, anything that's going to be polarizing to someone and just use like pure non-GMO cane sugar. Like our, you know, our Sweet Learn's whole product line is non-GMO and super clean, but we're also gluten-free, dairy-free, plant-based, nut-free, you know, so we just have, we're trying to reach everyone, like create the cookie, like the universal cookie that kind of can feed everyone, no matter what your lifestyle or food allergy might be. And and so just all that makes it challenging because it's not like you can use, you know, we, we have a very, very select group of ingredients that we use because we love them. And that's kind of what we built the brand on. And so we did a ton of consumer testing to really make sure like is less sugar, how incremental to the business is this? Like how important is this to people? How many people, like I don't want to launch a product that five people buy. You know, I want to launch something that millions of people are going to be happy with. And so, yeah, we launched chocolate chunk and also a sugar cookie. Both of them are less sugar. They're in Whole Foods nationwide and many other supermarkets as well. You can always check out our website where they're sold near you, but it's really been exciting because our chocolate chunk less sugar has now become our number two item. And so number one is just regular chocolate chunk. Oh, okay. And people do, there's a cult following for the sugar cookie, a cult following for the oatmeal cranberry, but like sugar cookie does very well during holiday time, as you could imagine. But, and then our fudgy brownie, if you like chocolate, that's a really big mover as well. But anyway, so it just, just again, showing that like there is a need out there. There are, there, there, there is a need to keep expanding. And as long as it's rooted in research and data, it's it's exciting to launch a product that does so well, you know, kind of out of the gate. So those are out there for anyone looking for a less sugar option. They're 40% less sugar than the average of the national cookie dough brand. So it's like almost half the sugar of that's out there. And wow, now that's we're crazy. In, I didn't realize it, is, it was. Yeah. Yeah. 40%. And just not using any filler or sugar replacements. I mean, I think that's, that's the hard part in all of that. Right. Keeping it clean. Keeping it clean. <laughs> so I know we're we're coming to time here. Just really quick, I want to hear, you know, as you've been building this business over the past couple of years, obviously tons of challenges along the way, but what's something that really sticks out where maybe you've thought to yourself, like, can we get through this? Something that maybe almost broke the business, maybe almost made you second guess why you're doing this or, you know, just one of the toughest moments that you've had to overcome to get to where you are. Oh, oh my God. I've had so many tough moments. I just remember so many times crying, calling my sister, calling my best friends, being like, am I crazy? Am I literally crazy for <laughs> what being- What am I doing with my life? <laughs> doing, devoting my whole life to cookie dough and like trying to make this a thing because- Sweet Lawrence is the number one natural cookie dough brand in the US now. But like when I started, I mean, we were peanuts and no one cared or knew or appreciated this category. It's I was a little early to market. Now natural foods is so mainstream, but I was launching kind of before it was just so kind of acceptable and common. And so it was so hard pushing this boulder up a hill. I'll say two moments like really stand out. One is that the second factory I started working with, they one day just sent me a letter in the mail saying, we no longer can be working with you. We're giving you a three months notice. They weren't a cookie dough factory per se. They made a lot of cookies and it sounds like it's the same thing, but it's not like there's totally different machinery you need. And they were like, we're going all into baked cookies. We're not really going to do cookie dough anymore. And we were so small. We weren't enough business for them that it was exciting for them to invest in it. 
but not even a phone call, not even an in-person meet, not even lunch. Hey, Lauren, I know you've like created this small but great business. Like we have some bad news to tell you. Let's create an exit plan that's comfortable for you. You know, it just was a letter in the mail. And I just remember being like so scared, so devastated. But what it did was it forced me to talk to anyone and everyone and figure out what the next factory would be. And that next factory was game changer to the business, totally excelled our growth. And it was like a real professional cookie dough factory. So That's it was a crazy. Right Isn't it so crazy how like things happen where it's like so terrible when it first happens. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, that's the best thing that happened to us. That's insane. Exactly. It's insane. And it, if I sat down and did nothing, it, it would have been the worst thing in the world. But it <laughs> right. forced me to turn over every rock and figure out who the right partner for us was that. So yeah, that was a major thing. And then the other thing was that like, you know, I was I was such a one woman show at the beginning for so long. And I did all the recipe testing myself. And I lived in New York City. I lived in a studio apartment, tiny. And I created all the recipes and new recipes and tweak things from that apartment. And so and how I did it was I literally raised my bed and had 50 pounds of chocolate under my bed or like right. huge things of like storage flour bed with storage. storage under my bed. And I had that for years, years. And so just to anyone who's like, oh, I can't pull this off or I live in a tiny place or my kitchen is tiny. It's like that kitchen I had didn't even have a real oven. It was, I bought like a big Breville, like toaster oven, you know, like that you plug in basically to be my oven. And so I just remember saying like, this feels so ridiculous. And this is like so unprofessional and so hard, but at the same time, now looking back, I'm like, you can make anything work if you're determined enough. And persistent and in, in solving major problems, like the yeah. manufacturing thing. So before we wrap up, what is next for the brand? And what's some final advice? you have for entrepreneurs that are out there maybe struggling to make it happen or have an idea and are afraid to take the leap or they're in the trenches and uh, need some encouragement? I would say, so for Sweet Lawrence, we this is the first year that we're going to be launching into products beyond cookie dough. So I can't reveal more right now, but it's super, super exciting, super tasty, a much needed product like this. There's a big need for this. So We've been working on this for a couple of years now. So this will hopefully launch by the summer. And so watch out for that. Watch out for some new flavors of cookie dough that will also hit the market come the summer as well. So very excited about that. And just our future, you know, that's my goal. I'm, I'm very involved in innovation. So really exciting things we're working on. So those are really what's happening for Sweet Lauren's and, and also marketing. Like we've done this all with kind of word of mouth. Now we have this awesome marketing team. So hopefully you'll see a lot more from Sweet Lauren's in the near future. And then for advice, I would say, I truly think there's nothing better than making your dream a reality. And just, if you are an entrepreneur, just owning that and loving that and building your own future. I think the biggest advice I have is just make sure you have a business plan. I think sometimes entrepreneurs just create a product and they just want it to grow, but it's like really find people that could help you put numbers behind that. Like, what does the market look like? What is the goal? Like what are real revenue goals? What is the goal of the company overall? If you could dream huge, what would that be? And figure out what makes you happy in that because then, then you can drive the company and the ship forward. But I think a lot of the times entrepreneurs just kind of want to get something off the ground without a plan. And so with that, I would also say 
as soon as you can, just hire the best possible, most experienced people on your team. I think it's worth every penny to have like a dream team. Even if it starts really small, you just have one or two other people, but it's all about the team. And so I really enjoy Sweet Lawrence because we have an awesome, capable, super experienced team. And I didn't have it at the beginning. So I really appreciate that. So don't skimp on hiring the best people out there. And the plan is so important. You know, I think with a lot of the stories that are out there of how founders came up with their business idea and went for it, there's very little talk about the plan they put together to make that happen. Because <laughs> it's such a, a detailed kind of behind the scenes type of thing. I'll have to do an episode or something about business plans. <laughs> I, <laughs> Some people so kind important. of understand. Yeah. Yeah. Like just get someone, pay a consultant, get someone who's been in the industry that could actually put numbers and goals behind it because you will actually hit them. Like they are real. Mm -hmm. And I think people just have to know, like, do you want a small company, a mid-sized company, a big company? Like what is the goal for you and the company? Because there's no right or wrong. It's just, what's your dream? Put it down and create a plan and then just execute at it every day. Awesome, Lauren. Thank you so much for sharing your incredible and inspiring story in Building Sweet Lauren's. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.